shattering the glass ceiling. Do you remember when you first heard that phrase? Let me jog your memory. Glass ceiling was a term used in 1984 by Gay Bryant in her book, The Working Woman Report. It resonated with the world of big business and, as importantly, with professional women who felt as if there was an invisible barrier to their success as they climbed the rungs of their career heading into senior management. By 1991, it was a well-known reality of women in leadership ranks, and the United States Department of Labor officially defined it as, quote, those artificial barriers based on attitudinal or organizational bias that prevent qualified individuals from advancing upward in their organization into management-level positions, end quote. But that was nearly 40 years ago. Surely glass ceilings have been smashed for good, yes? Someday I want to open up my own tennis academy or club where I can teach tennis to all different ages, ranging from young children to adults. Um, I don't believe if I had been a boy, my dream would be different, but I definitely think I would be more confident in achieving that goal, given the male dominance in the sports industry. Every tennis club owner I've come across have been male, but I do feel hopeful as I see more and more women owning small businesses. I do worry that I'm not talented enough all the time. I think this is something that goes through my head a lot. I'm surrounded by incredibly smart and talented individuals all of the time. I've played tennis at the highest level and know I'm qualified, but still struggle with imposter syndrome and feeling confident and voicing my opinion on and off the court. But we see too much global evidence and real numerica data that they have not, and we wonder why. Researchers have been wondering why as well, and so they tackled the issue anew, releasing the results in the journal Science Advances in early March in a report entitled The Stereotype That Girls Lack Talent, a Worldwide Investigation. They used a simple statement, one simple statement that required a ranking from strongly agree to strongly disagree, and they asked over 500,000 15-year-olds from around the world to give it a ranking. This was the statement that started the conversation about girls, talent, and the impact of stereotypes. When I am failing, I am afraid that I might not have enough talent. In 71 of 72 countries in which over 500,000 15-year-old boys and girls were asked to agree or disagree with this statement, girls were overwhelmingly more likely to attribute their failures to a lack of talent. Boys, on the other hand, were more likely to blame external factors. Some of you may be thinking, no surprise there, but others of you may be, in turns, disappointed or amazed. I am hoping that you are also intrigued. I'm Trudy Hall, your host for On Educating Girls, Creating a World of Possibilities, a podcast produced by the International Coalition of Girls Schools. Today, we will unpack one of the largest and most comprehensive international studies done to date on how girls are being held back by their fear that they lack talent. First, we need to understand what the study documented, and then we need to offer strategies to make progress in this arena. For those who are deeply curious, the link to the report is provided in the episode notes. Our listeners today will have the good fortune of spending time with Natalie Demers, the Director of Research Initiatives and Programs at the International Coalition of Girls Schools. Natalie has coordinated with colleagues around the globe to initiate the Global Action Research Collaborative on Girls' Education. It is the world's first action research program that engages girls' school educators from around the world 
in collaborative, disciplined, and sustained action research. The program connects educators and girls' schools with global research partners to produce a database of valuable and relevant research on the education of girls. Natalie also works on establishing national and international partnerships with researchers and research institutions to further the coalition's objectives to be the world's leading advocate for girls' schools and premier research hub for girls' learning. A graduate of an all-girls school herself, St. Mary's Diocesan School in Kloof, South Africa, Natalie fully appreciates the advantages of an all-girls education. Welcome, Natalie. I'm so pleased to have someone with your expertise and knowledge of research to help us dig into the findings of this gender stereotype research. Thank you so much for having me, Trudy. It's a delight to be here. First, if you will, Natalie, could you explain what you oversee at the coalition so our listeners know a bit about why you are steeped in this data? Certainly. Um, I'm the Director of Research Initiatives and Programs, and in that context, oversee all the research that NCGS conducts or sponsors, and in addition, I'm involved in curating research that's out there um, on the web on behalf of our schools. So going through all the available uh, articles and studies and curating them for content and for interest to our member schools. I noticed that um, ICGS uses the term action research. Can you tell us what, what that is and how it's different from other types of research? Action research is, is really a very natural reflection of what teachers do in the classroom every day. And so that is why we're using it with the Global Action Research Collaborative. It is a reflective research practice and cyclical in nature. So uh, teachers will observe something in their class that they want to address. They will think of an intervention to address that. And so they will measure the efficacy of that intervention in the classroom, and then they'll iterate. So it's this wonderful cycle of observation, reflection, um, intervention, iteration, and then continuing that cycle. And so teachers do this naturally every day in the classroom. They know when they go in and they say, that was a great class. Let me remember what it was that was so great about it. Um, or the moments where you go into a class and you're like, wow, that didn't quite land the way I intended. So what tweaks do I need to make for the next class or the next section? Um, and so action research is really putting a name on that reflective practice and giving teachers tools and tips and techniques to formalize it. And I know that it's been very important to you in your work to connect researchers around the globe. Can you give us a sense of how many uh, girls schools are involved in this research? So there are over 60 fellows from eight different countries around the world that are involved in the program. And they come from around 55 different schools. We have several schools who had such a great experience the first time have sent um, further educators to be a part of the program. Very exciting stuff. Now I think our listeners are going to want to shift to uh, the study that we um, called them here to listen to. And so I think it's important that we explain some key elements of the study published by Science Advances. Is it fair to say that with the large sample size of 500,000 and using data from a reputable and established organization, that the validity of the study makes its results even more compelling? Or is there anything about this study that would undermine the stated conclusions the article makes? Definitely the fact that, that it has such a substantial sample size is, is really exciting in reviewing the data. 
And in addition, PISA has been conducting these studies and these surveys of 15-year-olds um, from around the world every three years for a long time. So we have benchmark data. Uh, they're able to introduce new questions depending on what is going on in the world and, and specific areas to look into. But they also have the repeated question that allows us to, to track um, students from around the world. You know, the, the one thing about the PISA study is that not every single country around the world participates in it. And so we have to be cautious, despite the 500,000 participants, it can't be generalized to every country in the world. It gives us a good starting point and a, and a place to engage in conversation. However, it is not reflective of every single country in the world. That makes sense. And thanks for pointing that out. But you, you have to admit that the numbers tell a pretty provocative tale of how powerful and deeply rooted gender stereotypes are in cultures. You know, of the 72 countries that were included, 71 of those countries had students that were girls, particularly who were more inclined to attribute their failures to a lack of talent, even as boys attributed theirs to external factors. That's a complicated piece of data. Can you, can you help us unpack it? Yes, absolutely. And, and that's why girls' schools are so important today. Uh, what, what the data tells us is it really ties into growth mindset, that girls come to this conversation with a fixed idea that their talent, their brilliance, their capacity to be successful is somehow predetermined. It's somehow coded into their DNA that there's not space for them to lean in and to grow. Um, and so that, that very popular term, growth mindset, is, is a paramount when talking about girls and their understanding of, of talent when they tackle a, a, a task. So girls will see something and say, I don't have the capacity to be successful at that, whereas boys will dive right in assuming that they have the capacity to tackle that successfully. And if they fail... It's not because of themselves or any innate ability of their own. It can be attributed to external factors. I think this is really, really important when you consider uh, the impact of role models. So while girls may feel that either they have the talent or not, the opportunity to see other women being successful in these places that are attributed to brilliance, that fields that only smart people do, they're able to question that cultural message and that narrative and to push into spaces and say, if she can do it, then maybe there's something to this, something about um, me that I can, I can try this as well. You mentioned something that I think is critical to this conversation that not all of our listeners may know about. You mentioned the phrase growth mindset. Could you just take a mm -hmm. moment and explain what that looks like, what that sounds like? Because I do think you're absolutely right. It's a critical phrase. So growth mindset is really about the idea that with practice, with leaning into um, an activity or a skill, that you can develop competency in that area. A fixed mindset is, is speaking to the innate ability that you are born with. You can or you can't. It's very um, polarized. Whereas the growth mindset speaks more to that continuum, that journey of learning, of discovery, of trying and failing and recognizing that as part of, of the process. And, and that's where it's so important with girls to have opportunities, low stakes opportunities 
to try to push themselves into new areas of um, discomfort or try new sports, to try new arts, athletics, um, in ways that are not graded, because then you go back to this preconceived notion of brilliance and smart, and it's me that cannot be successful. And then I wanted to have us go to a sort of a different place because I'm in, uh, I'm liking the way in which this conversation is unfolding. Um, there is a part of the study that notes, it's in the report, that girls as young as six are already less likely than boys to associate smart attributes to members of their gender. And they begin to avoid activities said to be for children who are smart. Well, that's young. Um, and discouraging. Um, as you think about the messages that we should be sending to girls at that age, what what comes to mind from your research and from your understanding? Yeah, that's it is it is really young and and worrisome when you think of that message that that youngsters are having. And at four, they're not associating brilliance with gendered roles in the same way that they do at six. So there's something that is happening, some messaging that they're getting that is starting to frame in their minds an association between brilliance and talent and gender. Um, and, and to harken back to what we were talking about earlier, role models, it's vital that girls see women in places of success, women pursuing fields um, that are, are associated with brilliance. And the study uses the example of the information technology and computing field, that there is that direct correlation to, to brilliance and being smart and and being able to be successful in that field. And in addition, it's really, really important that girls have opportunities outside of the classroom to explore themselves as learners so that they start to create their own narrative of who they are and what they're capable of. So that while I might see only men in this role, I know that I can do why. And so that they're able to try a new sport and be supported by their teammates, that they're able to get on stage and, and sing or, you know, be, be a part of a theater group, that they're going into these places where they maybe themselves don't feel like they have the talent um, and finding out that they can have fun in that, that they can be good enough. Um, that's actually a phrase that we hear a lot as well in schools as it ties to perfectionism because perfectionism is also self-limiting um, because perfectionism is unattainable. It is something that girls will work and work and work at and not be able to, you know, get to that end point because who can define what perfect is? And so what we'll see is that um, it's an endless, it's an endless loop that you're, you're working and working and working and not seeing um, a result. You know, as you help us really understand the impact of this study and how deeply entrenched gender stereotypes are, were there other takeaways for you from the survey? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so this idea of, of brilliance and this, you've either got it or you don't, the one or the other, um, it is so self-limiting in, in what girls pursue. Um, we touched a little bit on perfectionism and how that is it's this endless effort to get somewhere and not feel a sense of accomplishment or be able to identify what is success when you're pursuing perfectionism. Um, 
And there's a fear of failure because there is this idea that I'm not smart. I have I have this capacity in me or I don't. And so if I'm going to try something that I don't think is me, I'm going to fail. And so they even stop before leaning into that space. I'm going to read to you a quote that's in the summary of the study, and I want you to react to it. So so here we here we go. Quote, believing that they are less talented than boys may hurt girls' self-confidence and lead them to be self-protective and thus to avoid challenging situations and opportunities and to choose studies and careers where success is not perceived to depend upon special abilities. Hence, it may not be surprising that the countries where girls are most likely to believe they lack talent compared to boys are also those where they shy away from prestigious or competitive careers, end quote. Could you speak a bit about the notion of girls being self-protective? And more specifically, are there ways that in working with them, we can recognize when they are being self-protective and begin to address those tendencies? Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question and a great term for us, us to hold on to, being self-protective. Um, this is where you're going to see girls not leaning into new spaces and new experiences. Um, what's important that we haven't yet covered in our conversations that connects to this is embracing competitiveness. So being self-protective is not only about themselves and the fear of failure and the unachievable perfectionism that that so many girls work towards, but it's also not wanting to impact negatively their friendships and their relationships. Um, And so this idea of competitiveness is seen as threatening to those that girls hold so dear, which which are their friendships and their relationships. Um, And competitiveness is a very positive, a positive trait. We want to embrace the sense of being able to be better than, than where we are right now the challenge and the the buzz of taking on a new challenge, the new opportunity, um, and and sort of seeing what's out there and where can we improve and how can we um, learn from and with one another. I think this is one of those key places where athletics ties in very closely. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity for schools with athletic programs to make that intentional connection between what happens on the court and in the sports field and in the swimming pool um, to their academics, help the girls to see, hey, we've run this drill five times, you know, or 10 times or 15 times, whatever it may be. Think about how you were at the beginning. Think about how you pushed yourself, how you pushed each other, how you celebrated each other. Think about what you've accomplished and how do you apply this to your math classroom? How do you apply this to your language classroom, your world languages, where you may be struggling with pronunciation and you get together with a a group of friends and you practice this in a small group and you can see how much you've improved. And so for girls, allowing them opportunities to to travel this learning journey, for them to see themselves as learners on multiple fields, pun intended, and, and to practice those skills when they're not getting a grade, yes, they, it may be a win or a loss on the soccer team, but it's not a grade that's going to end up on the transcript that's going to impact their university options. Um, and so any way in which we as educators can help girls see themselves as learners, help them see 
development and process and practice and growth, they're able to make those connections to the work that they do in the classroom. I hear you almost defining competitiveness differently for girls. I hear you defining being competitive as being a learner, you know, putting yourself out there. What can you discover about yourself? Um, Is that... um, can you offer some language like that? Because I like that. I, I know that so many girls just don't want to put themselves out there. And yet you've introduced a different way of thinking about that that might be very useful for parents to consider as they talk to daughters. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So I think about um, competitiveness as opposed to perfectionism or success. And we use the word perfect. Oh, she's such a perfect student. And, um, you know, that was a perfect performance or, you know, we use that term and, and girls are are holding on to that and using that as, as a goal. Um, rather seeing success and accomplishment as part of a journey that being competitive with yourself. So where were you? Let's think about that. Where are some spaces that you want to improve? Because girls know they're self-reflective. They're their own worst critic. You have a conversation with girls and you will know exactly what they think about their own performance. And so take those self-critic, those, those items, those, those points that they're holding onto, which will swim around in their heads, take it out and help, bring, help the girls bring it out if they have to write it down or have it part of a dialogue. And then they can list them out. They, um, they're no longer internal. It's something tangible in front of them and say, all right, here are these three points that you have identified as places that you do not find you were successful or you identify as places that you want to improve. And this is where you get a bit of the competitive juices going on. How can you do that? How can I help you improve in these places? Come up with an action plan. Try again next time and and reflect on those goals that you set for yourself. And so the competitiveness is with self and it's not seeing I am or I'm not. I have or I don't have. It's like here are three concrete things that I want to work on. Um, And then girls tap into that relational aspect of girls uh, they want to help each other. They want to support each other and encourage each other and have them, uh, you know, work together to buoy each other up. Say, yes, I saw that. Where where are there opportunities for peer feedback? Where are there opportunities where girls can have um, a, a safe place and time if it's in small groups um, or however the, the class or the environment is structured where they can offer Um, points to their friends, points of feedback and say, hey, I really liked when you, I was wondering when you, and so give them the tools to be reflective with one another so that the girls, again, can help each other because competitive is, is not always about being the best. It's also about challenging each other, that team mentality, challenging each other to improve. Um, and so by identifying spaces to improve, they can also then identify spaces where they have improved um, and find those successes and not simply the grades or the marks on, on the paper or the, or the test. I'm so glad that you talk about competitiveness in this way. I used to have the privilege of working with a great athletic director 
who was working with girls, and she would say, we never talk about competition against the other. We always talk about competition with the other, because if they have their best game, it prompts us to have our best game too. And I love that thinking about, no, competition is actually what we do together. It's not what we do as opposed to each other. As you think about the roles that we have as supportive adults in girls' life, given the extensive knowledge that you have about what enables girls to thrive, you've been great about offering suggestions about language, competition, uh, growth mindset. Can you offer any ways or thoughts about getting at the foundations of these stereotypes? Because they're clearly so deeply embedded. I think it's very telling that in the study, they made a clear distinction about the fact that parents more frequently Google the terms boys and brilliant or boys and genius than they do girls and genius. And so that makes us think about what are we unconsciously thinking about at home and what unconscious messages are we sending to our children? Um, there's fantastic writing about when um, kids are playing, when boys are playing, that the parents encourage boys to just figure it out. Like if they're struggling with Lego or with a puzzle or, or, or playing a game, boys just figure it out. Whereas when girls are struggling with something, parents have a tendency to lean in and help them figure it out. And I'll show you how this goes. This is how you attach these Lego pieces So how can we as the adults in our children's lives think about places where we can step back and let girls play and fail and struggle and see in those, again, low stakes moments, that journey between a problem and how to solve it and the persevering when it doesn't work the first and the second and the third time. Um, I've had to catch myself from, from doing that um, as well, diving in to help my, my kids. And, and um, I think that's something that we, we, can, we can think about as the adults in the kids' lives. And the same thing for the teachers in the classroom as well, to, to really think about empowering the girls to be the owners and the authors of their own learning. There is so often a sense that learning in the classroom is transactional. I do the work, the teacher gives the grade. And so how can we shift the language that we use so that it's I do the work and earn the grade, I do the work and get feedback and iterate and change and improve and I earn a grade. And so really sort of shifting that those opportunities for girls to feel ownership of their own learning and their own learning outcomes, as opposed to feeling passive recipients of the judgment of their success or failures. Um, And so those are, it's about conscious words. What words do we use when we talk about assessments, when we talk about grades, and when we say you earn or you got really just small little tweaks like that. And if we start that with the four and the five and the six-year-olds, then maybe there will be some shifts about their sense of self and and success. Um, Again, who is participating in the assessments? If If it's not this transactional relationship with the teacher and the student, but there's peer editing, there's peer feedback, things like that, it starts to make this less of a, of a, a, a give and take. It's a, a process. And collaboration, where girls can see problems or tasks that need to be undertaken as something we can do together. 
And so leaning in with the various skill sets, seeing how each person can contribute to something bigger than themselves. Um, and that can tie into the competitiveness. Let's be better. Let's work like not work harder. I have to catch myself there because that's a default term. You know, how can we think deeper about this term? How can we demonstrate our understanding in a different way? Um, and so the more voices as a part of that process, the girls can see themselves not as one way or another, but as capturing a moment on their journey of, of understanding who they are as a learner. And it's that unintended narrative that the girls are internalizing. And so how do we challenge that? How do we craft a new narrative for them so that they're not hearing that, that language, but they're, they're being prompted to think differently um, about, about their role and their capacity? One of the things that I've um, have been become much more interested in of late is what's going on in TV and cartoons and educational programming for kids. I I do think that there's some real intentionality going into the ways in which we message to children that wasn't there, say, a generation ago, and I think that gives me hope. Natalie, as we process and consider this study, and my guess is it's going to be unpacked for some long while because it was such a comprehensive study. Can you um, offer us some kind of hope that we're making progress in continuing to crack the invisible glass ceiling that keeps the hopes of young women from become realized? I mean, I'm amazed that that term is still very much in use 40 years after it was codified. Yes, absolutely. I'm I'm with you there, and we celebrate the the accomplishments as as they come up. Um, but we still have a long way to go, and it's amazing to see the work that's happening at girls' schools as as playing a very significant role in the um, the tapping away at that ceiling in multiple different formats uh, in, in in multiple different for, forums. Um, so I think that an interesting point about that research was a about the pipeline and about the glass ceiling, that we're looking at two different things. It's the girls who are self-selecting out or the woman, the young woman who are self-selecting out of some of these fields or some of these opportunities, as well as then the demographics and, and the sort of statistics of the woman in leadership roles or being represented in certain fields and in government politics with Ever it may be. And so our role at girls' schools is really to capitalize on this opportunity, amplify these girls' voices and the opportunities that are available to them beyond, I would, I would say we challenge beyond to really think about how do you take full advantage of the opportunity of being at a girls' school to broaden and to grow and to develop so that when you're in college and when you go on to your career, that you are uh, ready and a part of the group that is breaking the glass ceiling, that you don't self-select out of these opportunities that may be of interest or may be a passion of yours. Um, the girls' schools are the biggest champions in partnership with their parents of these girls, and, and they have an opportunity to see and live an alternate message to the one that they have in society, that culture is that our culture is providing for them. And so encouraging girls and educators and their parents to use every opportunity to practice, to see successes in small and large areas, to take risks, to, to dive into problem solving and step outside of comfort zones. 
So I know that um, you um, are touting girls' schools because it's what you do, it's what you believe in. You yourself are a product of girls' schools, I think, from South Africa. And so what I wonder is if I happen to be a parent listening in and my daughter's not at a girls' school, uh, can I still access the research that you're talking about? Can I, how do I get access to some of those strategies that you're mentioning? I would encourage any parent interested in learning more about girls' schools and ways in which to support their daughters uh, through this time to visit the website, our, our International Coalition of Girls' Schools website, which the link is available on the site, and, um, and dive into the research. There's a quick facts, so you can look at everything from cultural competency to leadership to STEM We've called uh, research from around the world representing a broad body of data points reflecting on girls and their learning and opportunities for women. It sounds like you have a job that really gets you up in the morning and keeps you engaged in a lot of big questions um, as regards how we educate girls, how we speak to girls. And so I'm really privileged that you were able to spend some time with us today. And thank you so very much, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me, Trudy. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to On Educating Girls, produced by the International Coalition of Girls Schools to address real issues that impact the lives of the girls we all know. As always, we would love to hear from you with thoughts and suggestions to inform our conversations. Perhaps you have a topic you want us to discuss in a future episode? Please send comments or questions to podcast at girlschools.org and join us next time as we share insights and resources. Thanks for listening. It's important to the girls in your lives that you do.